Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Killjoy Radio, where we discuss current issues feminists are talking about. So I'm Shiley, and we have James and Emily here today. We're going to talk about empowerment and women in What's many up? different sectors. Right? Hello folks. Yeah, so we're going to start out with women in entrepreneurship. Correct. Awesome, that is get correct. get right into it. Cool, thanks Shiley. No, no. Thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. As Shiley mentioned, we're going to be talking about a couple of different routes of women's empowerment. And I'd love to start with um, talking about how entrepreneurship empowers women and what we can do to empower more women um, in the world of entrepreneurship. So first, I'm gonna throw quite a few pieces of data at you. There will be a bunch of numbers, but bear with me. They're all interesting and I believe in you and your ability to keep up. So as many of you might guess, women have long been underrepresented in entrepreneurship, but according to the 2012 census, that trend is shifting. Since 2007, the number of women entrepreneurs in the U.S. has increased over 30%, making up 36% of all businesses. So we're inching our way closer to that 50% figure. Do any of you know any women in your lives that are small business owners? Yeah. Yeah, my, my wife's a small business owner. Awesome. My aunt is a small business owner. Awesome. What kind of businesses? Is that yeah. be good? My aunt owns a, owns a daycare, um, and it's in Atlanta. And I don't know, they usually have about like 25 kids at a time, and they're in different groups. And my aunt's like 35, so she started it about five years ago, um, and it's really taken off. It's been kind of cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And my partner... Uh, is an urban farmer. She grows her own microgreens and sells them at the farmer's market. And she's also uh, 30, she's 34 and in, in about her fourth year of doing it. So That's awesome. Yeah, and I think those figures are spot on because we're seeing lots of women in their late 20s and early 30s actually bumping this number up. Nice. So in 2016, there's a group called the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor, and they estimated that the total entrepreneurship activity of women in 63 economies, so now we're talking worldwide, increased by 10% over the last five years. So even in emerging economies, we're seeing more women start their own businesses, which is super exciting. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about how entrepreneurship empowers women. Research shows that women entrepreneurs generate more jobs and hire more people than their male counterparts. So if you think about that for a second, we see that women-owned businesses generate more jobs because they're actually, uh, they think more people first and they hire more people than their male counterparts who are mm. thinking bottom line first. So according to a 2016 Ernst & Young global job creation study, which surveyed almost 3,000 entrepreneurs around the world, Women are leading in the job creation market. They anticipate growth of 11% in the next year compared to only 8% among men-owned businesses. Also, 43% of women surveyed said they hired more than expected the year before compared to only about 35% of male entrepreneurs. Also, what happens is that when women hire more, they also hire more women. Mm. So you can see this trend (laughs) doubling down on itself, right? That's awesome. Is there anything about like race in that? Yeah. Like, I want to know kind of who, mostly honestly, who white women are hiring in those situations. Because I feel like women of color would hire people from their own communities. No, I think that's totally spot on. Um, and that's why we need to see more representation across the board. 
Um, I actually saw this really interesting example this morning that I'm glad you brought up. Um, there's a company, a very small company, brand new company right now called Mother and Clone, which is actually a medical marijuana company, dispensary. And they put out a mandate at their company last week that said they will only work with other companies, meaning like agencies, law firms, accounting firms, all of their freelancers that have at least one person of color or woman of color on their, uh, on their board or in a leadership position. That's awesome. Yeah, so they actually wrote this email, and they shared the email. I'm in a group called Ladies Get Paid, which is hey a little plug, too. Amazing. Um, so they shared this email in the hopes that other companies will use it. Mm -hmm. So when they get, when they realize that their accounting firm is only represented by white men, they send them this email. Hello, accounting firm. I'm going to put our call and all of our work on hold for now. We are actively looking to work with companies that have diversity and leadership roles. People of color, women of color, or women in general. We're sending out this message to all of our business partners. It's a stance we are taking and how we choose the companies we work with with the hopes of elevating equality practices. Good luck with everything and let us know if anything changes on your management team. Mm, I like that a lot because it's, uh, it's not just holding up the values, but it's actually leveraging where they have influence. Exactly, exactly, right. So they know that if there are women of color representing a business on its board, they are more than likely to hire more women of color. Nice. Wow. I'm like really processing that. Totally. Um, I think it's an interesting thing to have now, especially because not just in like entrepreneurship, but I feel like in every field, there are more people of color and women who are trying to set that standard. Like, I'm only going to do this if you are allowing other people like me to do this. Um, but I think that's really cool. Yeah, and I Especially, think... go for it. No, I was going to say what is interesting about it too is that they told the group that the response has been pretty overwhelmingly positive even from companies that are all white men they've responded to say this is something that we've been thinking about and something that we're working on mm. my guess would be they're probably not terribly actively working on it but if we have a lot more companies putting policies like this into place we will actually be forcing them to think about it by using our money that's really yeah so from the people, sorry, maybe I missed this, but like the people who are receiving this, right? And you said the out, the feedback is overwhelmingly positive. Who's that feedback coming from primarily, right? Yeah. Is it mostly other women? Is it other people of color? Is it a lot of white men? Yeah, I don't know for sure. It's the right question to ask. My understanding is that it's a mix, though generally I would say more of the feedback is actually coming from white men because this letter is hitting more white men, right? This letter is going out to the companies that don't have that diversity of representation. Right. So it's actually going to probably these accounting firms that have five white men on them and have had five the same five mm. white men for mm -hmm. the last 40 years. Um, so. I don't know, I find that, I, I think it's incredible, but I find it also super surprising. Yeah. Just because, especially with things like the way white people in general, but specifically white men, react to like things like affirmative action or diversity in the workplace and find it to be this very like childish concept and this yeah. like hand-holding concept of trying to make sure that's included. So I, I'm surprised. Yeah. But that's incredible. But you're totally right. I mean, they're... I would have to imagine there are a variety of cases where people are not thrilled with this policy. Right, right. Um, so there's always going to be some pushback and some angry white men, but like when aren't there? Right. And I wonder how it'd be different if it wasn't something like medical marijuana or right. like a dispensary, because I feel like that is already such like a liberal sector, right? And then I guess anyone associated with it would be more open-minded, but like what would it be like if it was, I don't know, like a bakery? 
or something else, yep. you know? Because mm-hmm. pot's really profitable yeah. right now. And it's a really important concept. And it's like a conversation that's constantly happening. So would they be as open if it wasn't that? Yeah, I think that's fair. And if it were a larger company, yeah. right? This is a pretty small company that has a pretty small reach. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a pretty cool place to start. That's cool. All right. Well, it sounds like there's cool stuff happening, but I'm curious, like, what are the hurdles still for women's empowerment in business? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of them people are pretty used to hearing, right? And mm-hmm. and it's some some of it is just flipping this last statistic on its head, right? So if we know that more women-owned businesses are hiring more and hiring more women, what we then know is that lots of men-owned businesses are hiring less, mm. and people are pretty prone to hire folks that are like them, right? So we're not hiring as many women. There are tons of issues with, and I don't have the data exactly in front of me, but with women's women in leadership positions, mm-hmm. um, particularly at our Fortune 500 companies, right? So, uh, off the top of my head, the representation is not more than 20 or 30 CEOs at these 500 Fortune 500 companies. That's right. Um, wow. So representation is really hurting. And I mean, from a on a day to day level, women struggle in business because for lots of reasons that you've heard of that people really kind of poke fun at. Um, Like women are taken less seriously in meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, We can talk a little bit too about, um, have you folks heard of the concept of amplification? This was something that was kind of popular or was made popular during President Obama's term. Because he hired a bunch of women onto his trusted team, but they were still experiencing this issue where they would bring up an idea in a meeting and it would get like sort of pushed over and then maybe like two days later, a male colleague would bring up the same idea and it would stick. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so they practice this concept of amplification, which is a strategy to support each other. So that when a woman proposed an idea or a solution, the other women would repeat it and assign the like originator of the idea to the person who said it. So essentially, Shiley, if you had a great idea and James wasn't listening. That's not listening. I would say, as Shiley said, I think we should go ahead and send this email to 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. Right. Until it sticks. I wonder, me always has to find a flaw in everything. I think that's amazing, and I, I think, one, it's unfortunate that you have to do that. But I think it'd be interesting to see how that works in different environments as well, especially because there is this competitive factor between women, and I think when you're already in an environment where you're not being heard, there is this idea of like, I need to be heard louder than that other person rather than we should be lifting each other up. So I think it's great that this is like changing that kind of narrative. But how long does it take to get there, right? Like how open are women to these ideas in workplaces that may not be as established, right? Because like, this is great that it's working in political realms and things like that. But I think it's also important to note that there are women in like, fast food who work together Mm -hmm. and need to be able to do these things and still be heard and still have those ideas. So like, how are those things coinciding? No, definitely. Like co-opetition is a word that I learned recently. So it's a, what what do you call it when you stick two words together? A portmanteau. Portmanteau. I did not. (laughs) (laughs) The word co-opetition is when you see cooperation between two folks or two organizations that you would imagine would actually be competing organizations. Mm. Okay. Um, and coopetition is a pretty big concept, particularly in the startup space, 
Because as your aunt or your partner might be able to validate, like you need a network in order to grow your business. Mm -hmm. yeah. And likely you need a network of people that's doing the same work as you. So that way they can help you uh, get in touch with other vendors. They can help you answer questions that you might have about your work. Um, and that's definitely lagging in a couple of different communities. I've seen it right here actually pretty actively in St. Louis. Another one of my projects I'm working right now is I'm attempting to get the organizations in St. Louis to work more closely together. Because what's happening right now is everyone is terrified that people are going to steal their ideas yeah. or steal their um, initiatives. Um, so much to the point that I was planning to volunteer with two different organizations last semester. And then when one organization found out that I was already working with another, they told me that I wasn't allowed to volunteer with them anymore. Um, despite the fact that these were organizations that were working in two very different arenas, but they were both working with women entrepreneurs mm. and were really afraid of um, you know, their ideas and their content escaping, despite the fact that I actually saw a lot of opportunities for them to collaborate and actually extend their reach if they work together a little bit more closely. And that's kind of an issue with feminism overall right now, right? Is that every space has multiple feminist organizations and groups and I feel like they all have this very specific idea of what their feminism is and it's preventing them from like working together and kind yeah. of building that bridge mm -hmm. and it's delaying us a lot yeah <laughs> and causing a lot of problems yeah and I, I think that's uh that, that's a problem that's sort of endemic to like Western capitalism, like patriarchal type thinking of the individualism, so that even as uh, as feminism has been coming more mainstream, it's uh, it's becoming uh, co-opted by some of these social forces that want to make it your empowerment be individualistic rather than it, it being as collective as it could possibly be. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I think the it's a, it's almost a capitalist notion right to to be individual as opposed to be part of a team so it's it's an interesting conflict to think about how capitalism affects all of these different pieces yeah. particularly within business right so how do you mix that collectivism yeah. within the business yeah. world with a feminist lens right yeah it's a great question it's exciting <laughs> <laughs> you know we've been talking about this for a while so very quickly i just want to cover a couple of ways that we can work to better empower our women entrepreneurs that we know are already making a pretty huge impact i also want to point out that um, i don't know the exact number of female entrepreneurs in total but the same study that we were talking about earlier from ernst and young they found out that women entrepreneurs were 20 percent more likely to be running one billion dollar companies than wow. men. I believe it. So we have fewer <laughs> women entrepreneurs, us. Yeah. but they're five times more successful and have a five times greater chance of running a billion dollar business. Mm. So if there's any women out there thinking of starting a business, <laughs> think about it a little harder. <laughs> when I kind of think about, about like when you see like Tinder versus Bumble, right? Like y'all know what those things are, yep. the dating apps. Yep. Bumble is run by a very young, I think she's a 28-year-old woman, maybe a little older, 28 to 32. Um, and then Tinder is just like dudes, right? <laughs> and I think one looking at how differently those two things are functioning and like now Bumble is working to like create business opportunities for women so you can use it 
instead of looking for a like intimate partner, oh, cool. you can do it to find business partners around you who may be interested in investing in your ideas no or way. maybe interested in working with you. Yeah. And so it's like, it's not something that, and Bumble's doing far better than Tinder right now, <laughs> but it, it is something that definitely puts women at the forefront in numerous ways. Like they initiate the conversation but I think it's something that started as like a dating app, and now she's like, "Well, women could use this avenue for other things that could mm. lead to their like economic empowerment." Yeah, and it's it's really it's been super successful and really really like efficient apparently. I love that. Yeah, yeah. There's a huge link between women entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurship, which mm-hmm. I love. I mean, I guess it would be tough to say for somebody to say that they hate social entrepreneurship, but <laughs> it's way more likely for women to pursue. Um, like goals centered on values and like social goals, um, which resonates with that Bumble story quite a bit. Yeah, Emily, I know you, yeah, you're trying to wrap up, but I want to ask you a specific question. Yeah. So um, I, uh, I listen to a lot of uh, Vox.com's like podcasts and um, Sarah Cliff uh, was talking about uh, her perspective on on the pay gap being that, uh, a lot of it in middle class jobs, especially, comes down to women uh, uh, having having a child yep. and and leaving the workforce for a little while, and then never being able to quite catch up with their male colleagues who don't do childcare. Uh, and and I'm curious. Uh, so my wife uh, would like to get pregnant and have a child, and and she has a lot of fear around how that's going to affect her business, which it's essentially just her and a part-time employee. And I'm curious if, um, like, what do you know about the way, the the difference between it might affect, like, a small woman business owner versus a woman who's working for, you know, a Fortune 500 company to to have a child? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And the answer, like many answers, is definitely Uh two-sided, right? When you have your own business, you don't have the the fallback or the the fail-safe of, having policies in place Mm -hmm. designed to support you while you're out on parental leave. Obviously, I'm not saying that every business in the United States has the best policies because we really don't. We have really crappy parental leave policies. But if you work for a larger company, it's likely that you have some time given to you to take off um, where you won't be penalized for taking time off of work. That being said, if you work for any size company and you decide that you want to stay home and uh, work from home and be with your children for 10 or 15 years, I don't have the answer for how you solve that that gap for coming back to work after that amount of time. It's a really tough question. Yeah. I think that sometimes smaller businesses actually are in a better place to come back after longer absences away just because... Um, you know, you're building yourself up from the ground a couple of different times. You've already done it before. And everybody knows that the business represents you and your work. So it's less about how many years experience you have and more about the product that they're very clearly able to see you delivering. Absolutely. And, and I've noticed uh, with the way that my wife runs her business, uh, relationships are central to it. Right. And so she builds good relationships with all of her customers and clients and uh I'm sure if she took two or three years off and told them she was coming back, they would be thrilled. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, very quickly, we talked about how parental leave, better parental leave options uh, will support and empower uh, women entrepreneurs. Also, really specific health and safety standards at work, which cover 
sexual discrimination and sexual harassment are really important in the workplace. So if you don't have those policies in place, put them in place. We touched on this earlier, but we need more female role models, right? We need more women in leadership positions. Uh, we need more women on the boards of all these different companies so that they can provide mentorship and also hire more women. And I think that kind of transitions into what James wants to talk about, right? Like most of the people who get to select those women are men. So I don't know, how can men help women's <laughs> empowerment, right? And like, I think one thing is putting women on your boards and like my, I'll let you get started and then I'll get back into it. But yeah, go for it. Great. <laughs> um, yeah, so for the, for the past four years or so, a lot of the work I've been doing is thinking about uh, how to take on questions of masculinity, especially in, in boys and young men, and how to get them thinking about uh, the way they treat each other and also the way they treat women. And so uh, for this podcast, we're thinking about empowering women. And I think a key piece of that question is how do you, how do you get uh, the, the men out of the way that are actively disempowering women, right? You know, I, I think a lot of... Uh, a lot of work has been done in the last 30 years to raise like mighty girls, you know, like our, our girls are strong, they can do anything, and yet they still keep running into these quote unquote glass ceilings. Well, yep. there's usually a man holding that glass ceiling in place, right? It's not just, it doesn't just exist outside of, outside of people and relationships. Um, and so I, I think a lot of education needs to be, uh, needs to be done with men, especially teenage boys and young boys around, around shifting those kinds of things. Um, f helping them figure out how to support the, the leadership of women uh, so that uh, men can start seeing women's empowerment as, uh, as, as a cooperative process that will benefit all humans rather than as an antagonistic process where women's empowerment means men's disempowerment. Yeah, because I, I, I fundamentally don't think that's true and I haven't seen that to be true, but I do think uh, when you've been in a role where you're holding other people down, and you're told they're going to be even with you, it feels like you're going to be held down now, right? Yeah. You know, it's hard to imagine we're going to, like, uh, be equals when it's like, I've only known how to oppress, so why would I trust that you're not going to do the same to me? Right. Because um, up until this point, I mean, men's empowerment does disempower others, so yeah. why wouldn't it work in the reverse way? That's right. right. That's right. But. And so but one interesting trend that I've been seeing is that... Um, while like feminist theorizing has been taking on this question for the last couple of decades, and, and certain authors like Michael Kimmel and Michael Messner have been really talking about men and masculinity, only in the last couple of years has it really started entering the mainstream. Yeah. Um, so in the last year, I've read articles in the New York Times and the Huffington Post and Time Magazine, um, different articles online, like one recently on Quillet. Um, and... Uh, I want to look uh, in our conversation a little bit about how we raise boys. How do we interact with young boys? What do we do with them? How do we treat them differently? And what could we shift to to help them actually grow into men that support women's empowerment? Um, so the New York Times like actually had an article about this, and they, and they had a, a series of suggestions, which were like, let your boy cry, uh, provide women role models for him, encourage him to be himself, which was accompanied by a picture of a boy wearing like a dress and some sparkles and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> Like, teach him to take care of himself, which was accompanied by a sweet little picture of a boy sweeping, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like, 
I think boys are often taught someone is going to take care of me. Yep. You know, my mom is going to take care of me. Mm-hmm. And so when I, you know, get married to a husband or a wife, like they're going to take care of me and which creates some conflict. Um, take care of others, you know, and teach boys how to share the work. Encourage boys to have friendship with girls. Teach them that no means no. Uh, teach them to speak up when other people are intolerant. Teach him to never use girl as an insult mm. and encourage him to read about girls a lot. Uh, and there's a lot in there, right? You know, it was this dense article. But um, but I think we could flesh out some of those pieces on how we think that could really contribute to uh, to men supporting women's empowerment. I do like this idea of like men having women as friends, right? And I think that, or children, boys sure. having girls as friends. And I think that's because... I feel like when boys are only surrounded by boys, Mm. regardless of how empowered they are, how much they're encouraged in their own life to be themselves or embrace whatever they want to, on average, that's not what's happening, right? So if you're only hanging around with these, like, other children who are most likely embodying these, like, toxically masculine ideas, right, you're not really going to be able to do much with that. But I think it's when boys are friends with girls and they see... I find that girls before the age of, like, 12 really don't have as strong of an idea of, like, how much the world limits them. And I Mm -hmm. think it's once you're 12 and you're kind of transitioning into that adolescence that it becomes a lot more evident and you become a lot more limited. Mm. Um, And I think that starting at a young age and surrounding them with women who, like, do maybe have more... I guess like masculine, like what we would associate with masculinity, right? Like why can't boys play soccer with girls, right? Like why aren't we encouraging children to play with other genders on the playground? Because when I was in school, it was super gendered. Like girls played with girls, boys Mm -hmm. played with boys because teachers didn't want them to be too rough with each other or things like that. And that's just, I mean... Yeah, I mean, it brings up an interesting point and one that I was going to ask you about, James. I feel like a lot of times... It's not so much the the boys or the girls that we need to be looking out for or modifying their behavior. Like, it's the adults in the situation that put a lot of constraints on how boys should act or separating the genders, right? There was an article last week about this 10 or 11-year-old girl who was playing baseball in her community. And at one of the coaches' meetings, there were two coaches who are grown men and fathers said that they were planning to bean her at practice, which means throw baseballs at her head, to scare her away from the baseball team so that she wasn't playing with their sons anymore. So this is um, not always, I mean, I guess I guess that happens a lot, right? It's not an issue for our children until adults make it an issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to an extent, um, what I would say is all of those adults were children once, yep. right? And we're being trained in, into, this, into this mentality. It's a great point. So it's a question of like, where where are the multitude of ways we break this cycle, right? And I think with adults is one way and with children is another way. Yeah. And the other thing is is children pass culture on to each other without adult influence, mm-hmm. right? right? So you can you can have all the adults in your life decide like we're no longer gonna use gay as an insult and and yet middle school boys still figure that out because they're <laughs> passing it on to each other, right? So yeah. sometimes we need to, we definitely need things that intervene and, and, and change adult behavior. Yeah. 
and I think we we need to be targeting boys directly and how and how they act. And and so to your point, Shiley, uh, I think boys and girls playing together is key, right? Yeah. Because how are we going to get boys to work with women in the office place yep. if they never played with girls, if they never saw them as peers as a child? Mm-hmm. But it it pulls another question to my mind, which is almost more interesting, which is how do we get men to back women's leadership, right? How do we get boys to support girls being in charge? Yeah. And um, I was talking to a man who does youth groups with uh, with children, and he was telling me about a situation he was having where uh, the boys would all be playing basketball, and there was a girl who wanted to play basketball with them. And so she would play, and she would manage to hang in there for about 20 minutes, and then she would get really upset and emotional because the boys were being quote unquote, too rough with her, right? And he was like, and I just don't know what to do. Like, I'm not sure if maybe like she should just have like a girls basketball team. And I was like, here's an idea. You're an adult, so you're in charge. So you tell all the boys that she's in charge of the basketball game. So she gets to determine like what's a foul, what's not, who's pushing too much, who's pushing too little. If yeah. someone's doing being too rough that she's not comfortable playing, she gets to kick them out of the game. <laughs> yeah. And you support that. And I was like, because then you're fundamentally teaching the boys that it's okay for girls to be in charge, to use their thinking for what makes the most sense, and for them to support that. They need adults teaching them that, and they Absolutely. need adults modeling that. Interesting. Absolutely. And I think it makes men, or eventually will be men, more comfortable with the women in power and less intimidated by that success because mm-hmm. I mean let me tell you <laughs> I have I actually had a conversation with my father about this the other day about I was like the dating world is so bizarre because anytime I'm at dinner with a man and I tell him all the things I've accomplished his tone immediately changes mm. he's immediately disinterested and he feels intimidated and emasculated and why is that the case to which my father responded tone down your confidence and talk less uh, about what I'm you've sorry. accomplished right <laughs> Oh, no, we had a big conversation about that. It's totally fine. But that's not, it wasn't, okay, well, why aren't men comfortable with this, right? So, like, going back to this playground example, when a boy loses a soccer game to girls, Mm -hmm. it is the end of the world. Yep. Like, I have nieces, or cousins, nieces and nephews. Cousins are, like, four and five. And whenever one of them loses to a girl, you would genuinely think it was, like, someone cut a limb off. That's right. Yeah, so there's two things happening, right? One, they're taught from early on they're supposed to be dominant and and better than girls, right? And we do that in our language all the time, like don't play like a girl, et cetera, et cetera. But the other thing that's happening is it it can be sad and disappointing for anyone to lose. Yeah. And and for boys, there's no space for them to show that Ah, emotion, right? So they don't actually get to express their sadness. Adults have no attention for boys to be sad about losing, especially when they're losing in a way that goes against what society tells them, that they're not supposed to lose. So that's why I liked that New York Times list, because it addressed both of those, right? One, tell boys, like, throwing like a girl is a good thing. And two... When you need to cry, I'm going to show up and let you cry about that. I'm not going to further emasculate you or or do anything. Because then he'll process his emotions. And the next time he loses to a girl, it won't be as life-shattering, right? But if that sense of his whole identity as a boy relies on that piece, he's stuck in such a tight spot, right? Like, you have to win. And if you don't, you're going to have feelings that you're not allowed to show. Yeah. And I think that's often what leads to men 
being so silent as adults mm -hmm. in situations where they may want to encourage women to get involved in yep. leadership positions or things like that. But it's like how I feel about this isn't, I don't know, when it's something that's more emotional or something that's more, that's bigger than just like how they are themselves influencing a situation like directly, men don't usually want to be engaged because mm -hmm. it's like this is a sensitive topic or it's a topic that may make me look weaker in front of people so let's move on from it and just ignore it does yeah. that make sense yep like absolutely crazy. yeah yeah uh so i want to shift the conversation just a little bit uh -huh. um because this that piece was a little bit more about dominance mm -hmm. which is one of the ways boys are trained that i think gets in the way of them supporting women's empowerment and the other piece is entitlement okay and i think it's important for us to think about um I think especially white boys historically have been trained that they're entitled, right? And I think that goes back to colonialism and all these things. We get your land, we get your people, we get your women, right? Yeah. So that gets passed on subtly to where I, I think most boys raised in the US, but white boys especially, have a sense of entitlement to women's bodies. and. As long as that's the case, it's going to be hard for women to fully feel empowered yep. in workplaces and other 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 spaces. If if there are men that consciously or unconsciously are acting like I'm entitled uh, to your body, however I want to, Absolutely. right? Um, and I, and we've done a lot of work on this historically, right? With the laws and setting up sexual harassment uh, uh, laws and, and work policies and everything, and yet we haven't shifted the culture as much as I think we need to to really have men be true allies towards women's empowerment. Um, and towards that end, like the, the work I've done around that with young boys is teaching them about consent, teaching them about gender roles, talking about uh, you know, empathy and imagining like you're you're in the position of someone who is being objectified all the time and, and you know and, it, and that takes creativity with teenage boys like having them like you know <laughs> setting I'll do scenarios and imagine I'll be like imagine that you're in this position and everyone around you is like you know like you you walk into class and all of a sudden like 10 people are staring at your crotch like yep. do you start feeling uncomfortable and they're like well yeah you know and I'm like okay right so I try to just get them to break out of thinking about the world through their own lens that they've been taught to and start thinking about through the lenses of how other people have been experiencing life. Um, but I'm curious, like, around, yeah, consent, sex, those kinds of things, like, where you all see uh, boys and men needing to be smarter about uh, supporting women. Let's get started, because I have a lot to say. <laughs> no. Um, I think one major thing is communication during sex, and I think that goes beyond consent. I think, like, consent, yes, is very important. But I think something that particularly men are very uncomfortable with is women communicating what they want in bed. Mm. And I think that that transfers over to many different parts of life. But specifically talking about, like, the body, a big part of why men don't consider that important. So, like, okay. I'm going to start from the beginning. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Necessary. And I just want to acknowledge we're kind of focusing in on like heterosex right now. Yes. But like I, I do think when I talk to my guy friends who are gay, they'll say a lot of these dynamics come up in their relationships also because both of them have been conditioned yeah. in, in certain similar ways in our society. And they might not identify with those social norms, but 
pushing against them is still a, a, a separate sort of friction that they're facing yeah. in their relationship. They can feel so it. absolutely, I, I do think it's important for straight guys to be thinking about this, and I think it benefits all guys to be thinking about their entitlement conditioning, their dominance conditioning in, in sexual relationships. Oh yeah, and I think entitlement in sexual relationships, particularly heterose heterosexual relationships, is so prevalent. And I think that's, I mean, the biggest conversation is, right, like women who fake orgasms is like 75% of our population, right? Mm. And I think that that's very, it's overlooked a lot and the importance of that is overlooked a lot, but I think that's often happening because women are not comfortable communicating their needs in bed, right. what they like in bed. And that's not that's not just because of people teaching women that their sexual desires are unnecessary or not valid or they exist solely for the sexual pleasure of men, but also because men don't encourage that communication. Um, there's, oh, it, there's a book called The Feminist Porn Book and it's called The Politics of Producing Pleasure. Really great read. But a very important part of this book is they talk about how in bed, when women do communicate what they want and what makes them feel good, men often silence them and say, like, I know what I'm doing. Like, mm -hmm. I've never had this problem before. You're the, like, issue. And I think that immediately, even when it's coming from, like, a sexually liberated or sexually empowered woman, takes you back five steps. Yep. Because that's just silencing you right there. And I think that men need to be more, one, open to the idea that you're probably not great in bed. <laughs> like, let's be real. You probably don't know the desires of a woman. and you Because in many cases, they don't identify as that. And they aren't super familiar with what those needs are. Especially because not every woman is the same. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, I almost want to get rid of this idea of being great in bed. Right? That's like <laughs> yeah. a total messed up construct. Because it's like, it's it's... It's about being great for the person that you're with. Exactly. And, and that's totally different. Exactly. And every sexual experience is so different. And you can't just be like, well, this guy, every single one of them has been great. Doesn't what happen. What is determining that? <laughs> like, just him? Like, he walks in a room is like, I'm incredible and bad and this is great. But I think what really sucks about that is that sex is something that so many women can find empowerment through. So many. Like, it... I mean, it really, a woman who can find sexual empowerment and sexual liberation has a completely different relationship with her body than I think most women do because that doesn't exist. I think sex for a lot of women, and this is very common and it's in a lot of different things, but it's a very out of body experience and not in a positive way. Mm. Uh, many women say that they, when they have sex, it's a completely disconnected experience. Their mind is in a different place and their body is just kind of there. Mm. Mm. Right? And I think, and even going along with like Christian sexual ethics, a positive and healthy sexual relationship is one in which the mind and body work together and that power can be equally transferred between those partners. And like, that's not just John Paul II, that's many different <laughs> Christian ethicists who believe that. And so if it's something that's that ingrained in like, many religions are reaching for it, I am disturbed that in a place like the States where Christianity is so ingrained, sex is not only taboo, but taboo only for women. Yep. Mm. And it's closing an avenue Honestly, one of the easiest, in my opinion, avenues and most present and accessible to all women to be able to find that liberation and empowerment. 
Does that make sense? Of like, yeah. You know. so, something I know you've thought about, uh, but I want to hear your thinking here on is how sexual empowerment is related to ending oppression, like ending racism or ending sexism in the world. Oh yeah, I think that's so. I mean, I think a lot of right. We see sexism and like sexual harassment and assault in the workplace and that is this idea of like entitlement of women's bodies really are seen as something that exists solely for pleasure mm -hmm. but not pleasure when they want it pleasure when other people want it from them and I think that a part of sexual empowerment is recognizing that your body is it lies in your power mm. and it relies on your choice to participate in those situations um, and I think with sexual empowerment it also opens up the store for women of like they're are no limitations of what you are physically able to do and therefore also emotionally, if that makes sense. Yep. So if women are able to find more confidence and power behind closed doors, in the bedroom, in situations where they're the most vulnerable and very intimate with individuals, like may it be emotionally or just physically or both, I think that confidence and that power does transfer over to everyday life nice. it will allow women to feel more i mean i feel like less women would be apologetic when they have opinions and less women mm. would be silenced when they have opinions because men are already viewing you as sexual objects but silent sexual objects if they can view you as an equal in the bedroom and they hear your voice and your desires in those situations it's more likely that they'll hear them in everyday life mm -hmm. yeah yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and I also think I've heard you talk about how uh, for women of color, there's a, a particular way that their beauty and their bodies are disparaged in our culture. Oh, and yeah. so taking that back uh, through sexual empowerment is important. Oh, absolutely. And I think that women of color are exotic and mm. definitely fetishized yep. rather than just admired. And I think those are very different things, yeah. right? Um in this in empowerment, I think for women of color, it's important because in any situation in our current structure, they are automatically not powerful. And I think having an avenue that exists in their everyday life, similar to white women, where they can be powerful or in specifically in regards to relationship with other white people mm. and like interracial relations, relations, but like sexual <laughs> relationships um, that are interracial. Um, that power can be transferred. And I think that transfer of power in those sexual relationships is super important. Because if I'm a Middle Eastern woman, if I'm having sex with a white man, and in that sexual relationship, I'm the dominant one, now that doesn't necessarily mean what our typical ideas of like dominant and submissive it are. But I can take over that power and be the dominant one and communicate what I want, communicate what I like to that person they are less likely to be intimidating to me when I'm out in the workplace. And I'm able to be like, mm, listen, Joe, yep. <laughs> you may be wrong on this. By may, I mean you are. <laughs> and here's why I'm not. And it's, I think sex is really ingrained in our society. It's super taboo and people don't talk about it. But I do think a lot of our power dynamics are present in sex and a lot of them also derive from sex and how we view those relationships. It's super foundational. It's been around for years and it's always been a power like imbalance. Yeah. So by restructuring that, I think it restructures our intimate relationships, which then restructures our just everyday conversations. 
Yeah, I'm super curious about the intersection of Shiley's conversation and James's conversation, I think is really interesting. And I'm curious, James, about how you feel or like where you think the the boys and the teenagers that you work with, like where are they coming from when they get to you? Like, mm. is, are, are the boys like really pushing hard against the concepts that you're teaching them? Or do they feel like they, they get it or they're game for it? They just need to be kind of brushed up on it. No, they push hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Got uh, it. They, they definitely push hard. I think, um, you know, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a curriculum where I meet with the boys 14 times, I, I might spend two or three of those just on consent. Yep. Right? So, we'll, and we'll take it from a bunch of different directions. Uh, but I want them to understand that if you're planning on being sexual with someone, like Shiley's saying, communication is key. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'll dig at them on, like, why does communication make you so uncomfortable? Like, mm-hmm. why... Does it feel so awkward to you uh, to to imagine communicating? You know, and I, and I'll always kind of like turn it back on them in, in different kinds of ways. Um, but often I'll also just relate things back to like our gender conditioning, and then you know ask them like if if this is the world we have where where consent is so hard for you, but you told me that you want a world where people aren't raped. Yep. Like, how, how, how do we actually make that change? And a piece of making that change is you agreeing that consent is important, right? <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so we'll take it from different angles like that. But they, they, definitely, they definitely push back. But they're interested, too. Yeah. I mean, let me just be clear. Yeah. Young boys want to understand consent because none of them want to... Ultimately, no one wants to be the person, maybe some people with psychic, you know, psychological disorders, but no one outside of that really wants to be a person that knows, well, I sexually assaulted someone. Yeah. Well, I raped someone. Like, you know, that yeah. that's not like something that you're like, I'm looking forward to carrying my whole life. And so, uh, so oftentimes they're very curious about consent and how do I know I'm doing what I want to do and how do I know that they're doing what they want to do and stuff like that. And so we'll get into like, you know, they'll be asking me, they'll be like, they'll be like, well, what kind of things, like give me a phrase I should ask someone or like what could the person say and then I know that they're actually consenting, you yeah. know? Uh, yeah. No, keep going if you're okay. not done. No, yeah, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. My, also, my thing with that, and I think that's great, and I – I think it's awesome that you're reaching out to that demographic when they are so impressionable about sex. I think, not in this specific instance, but, like, the larger conversation about consent is something that, like, I feel like is not being utilized in the way that it could be. I feel like when we talk about sex and, like, consent, it really just stops it. Like, here's what consent is. Here's why you need it. And, like, here's why it's helpful if you know it and, like, practice it. Yep. That's it. It doesn't talk about how to have a healthy sexual relationship mm-hmm. and what because uh, yes once you have consent that's great right like you have consent active consent keep checking in but then what about just like communicating what you want not just yes or no that's right right like that's something that needs to happen like boys need to be taught that like you can tell a woman if you don't like something and it doesn't make you look less masculine because there's a certain aspect of sex you don't enjoy Mm -hmm. and women need to be taught it's okay if you're not having a pleasurable experience and to correct the person that not correct but to tell the person that you're with hey here's how this can be better for me Mm -hmm. and i think that is a step in that larger conversation that we're not taking yep because 
Consent's great, but what about after consent? People can still have shitty sex and have consent. That happens every day. That's right. Um, but I think without having good sex, whatever that means to a person, that empowerment through those experiences is not present. It's missing. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a young man who was struggling around this also because uh, the, the group of boys, they were all okay with the idea of checking in and consent and that kind of stuff. But then we took it to the next level of we don't usually talk about what sex means to us. Yeah. You know, like, is this about us loving each other? Is this just about us pleasuring each other? Like, what is our relationship after we have sex? Like, those kinds of questions. Yeah. And I think we haven't engaged consent in a way that it's actually empowering uh, for women and for their ongoing relationships mm-hmm. around that piece, Absolutely. right? Like, in this, to, to flesh it out in this boy's example, he was at a party with a girl. And, um, and he had a crush on her, and she really liked him, and people all knew that. And they're like, you know, 16, and they were encouraged to go make out in a room. And some more stuff happened that I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about 16-year-olds doing together right. on the air. <laughs> and then, uh, and then you know, that he thought that was it. And he was like, you know, we checked in, we talked. I was like, are you sure you want to do this? And she was like, yeah, I want to do it, and great. Come Sunday, he doesn't call her. Come mm. Monday... He hasn't called her. She's all pissed off. All of her friends are pissed off. He's yep. like, what's going on? Her, her friends are like, well, she thought y'all were going to be like a couple now, and so you should have called her by now. And he's like, we didn't talk about that. I thought this was just like party hookup, yeah. and like that was it. And so my challenge was like, why didn't you talk about that? Right. You know? And both sides were scared yep. that they wouldn't get what they wanted, right? Yeah. She wanted a relationship and was scared she wouldn't get it without being sexual. And he wanted to be sexual and was scared he wouldn't get that if he had said, now this is just about being sexual, right? Like we're not going to be right. in a relationship. <laughs> right. And then when I ask guys, like, well, why wouldn't you say that? He's like, because then you're not going to get any. And I'm like, okay, so there's the problem because you're still using manipulation and coercion. It's, it's lying, right? right? Yeah. You're still feeling entitled to something and willing to manipulate another person to get what you want. When all you could do is have that conversation, and if it's not working for her, move on to the next one. And within the next five people, you'll find someone on the same page as you. There you go. <laughs> like, truly. And I think those conversations are especially important right now because the hookup culture that we are immersed in is just crazy pants (laughs) I mean it is so intricate and so vague and broad and there is zero communication from anybody involved which is why every single when I walk across this campus do you know how many times I hear well he didn't call me or I don't know what we're doing we're just kind of hanging out we haven't really talked about it like I like sleeping with him but I don't know I want something more does he just sit down and have a conversation about it folks and that'll close a lot of those questions up for you But we don't, especially because, I mean, people's first sexual conversation is usually with their parents. Mm. And parents are usually really weird about that. (laughs) And that just sets the groundwork, honestly. Because if your parents are weird about it, when they're teaching you about it, you're going to be weird about it from the get-go. And that's just going to, and it just causes this cycle. I am from a very Middle Eastern family. My father is very his scope is kind of small sometimes but when it came to sex we were super open any questions I had we'd talk about when they first started talking about sex they told me way too much honestly (laughs) like I was like this is a lot but cool and it was something that we were never afraid to engage with because I remember 
Um, there was one time when I was like a kid and I was walking around naked in my house and my dad's like, okay, like you need to go like put some clothes on. My mom was like, don't tell her to put clothes on because then she's going to be weird about her vagina for the rest of her life and she's never going to have good sex and you need to let her live her life. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and that's so true. And I was so young and I like, as I'm a, now, I recognize that, yeah, that probably would have happened and that does happen a lot. Mm. But it goes back to this idea of like, we do also need to change adult behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part of it. The birds and the bees are not that big a deal, y'all. Yeah, <laughs> I would have to agree. Yeah. Shiley, I have a question for you. So one thing I've noticed with boys is as I'm encouraging them to go against the social norms, yeah. right, that going against the grain creates like a, a, an internal friction in themselves. Yeah. And that having a group, a space to process that and talk about that is is helpful for them to continue going against the grain and it also helps hold them accountable to what they want to do are there are there similar processes or or groups i I just heard you saying the conversations in your family were important that you know of of like women mutually empowering each other to have good sex but also like keep ourselves account keep yourselves accountable to maintaining your commitment to yourselves i'm curious about that absolutely see i wish there were more spaces that allow for that that were celebrated because mm. I feel like those spaces do exist but for women they are off and for men but particularly like, they are very hush hush right and I think you know women we people have their cocktail hours and they talk about their sex lives amongst their friends and things like that but the one thing I think about a lot are sex toy parties okay and the reason is because I used to work for an organization and they used to do these a lot. And when I first started, I was like, okay, what's happening here? And important, fun stuff, but like for what their larger purpose was, I was kind of wondering how they, why they were engaging with this specific event. Yep. And when I was talking to one of my higher ups, she goes, when women are in this space and it's already somewhat of a sexual space, the floodgates just open. Any questions they have about sexual pleasure, any of their experiences they've had, they are just so comfortable, honestly, just because there's a vibrator on the table. Even if they don't talk about it, but just having it there makes them feel like, okay, this is a space where this is allowed because in most spaces, us talking about this isn't allowed. Um, And that's not something as formal or as structured as like, a group of men sitting around and talking about these things, but I think it does add an element of casual that makes people more comfortable. Yeah, definitely. While still being in a space that's like, this is, you know, a place you can talk about this and it's okay. And women would leave these events never having met before and like best friends forever. Mm. You know? Yeah, and I feel I, like the casual has a lot to do with it. Exactly. Yeah. So like, we need to casualize sex, honestly. It's, <laughs> I mean, I am very open and like I'll be in coffee shops talking about it and my friends are like, Shiley. Yeah. <laughs> we're in public. And I'm like, everyone in here knows what sex is. <laughs> everyone. And if they don't, now they do. And that's something that they should know by now. Like, so yeah, normalizing it, one, so that we can talk about it in everyday spaces. But yeah. before then, creating spaces that are comfortable are important. And I appreciate the work that you're doing because it is big work and 16 year old boys need to be able to talk about their sexual experiences now so that when they're 36 they have a little bit more sense yeah i love it i love it are we all feeling empowered listeners i'm ready to fight (laughs) honestly and that's kind of my definition of empowerment today but (laughs) no yeah man this was good 
Well, this is a great conversation. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, love listening to you all think out loud. So yeah, it's fun, and and thanks everyone for for joining us and listening today. Let's continue to talk about these things.